Father, we thank you for being a God who speaks, for not being far off and unreachable from those who you've made, even made in your image, but by revealing yourself in words, even in your word given to us, so that we might truly know you, that we might be saved from our sins and forever be a part of your plan for this world. And Father, this morning we pray asking your blessing that you would help us to make the most of the calling you have placed upon us as Christians and indeed the calling that's upon all humans to make something of this world and to create culture in the image of you, the one who made us all. Help us to think carefully about this and use every moment for your glory, we pray in your mighty name. Amen. 94 years ago today, a man, uh, a boy was born by the name of Michael. It would go on to be known by Martin, as Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he was a man who had a dream. And as a result of that dream, the nation we live in and the culture we have all inherited has undoubtedly been changed for the better. Uh, the civil rights movement and his efforts within it uh, resulted in the end of segregation in the United States. Um, that didn't usher in utopia. Not all the evils, not even all the ones related to racism went away overnight. Uh, but undoubtedly, something better was built than what was here before and what we've come to know as the culture of the United States. Uh, this morning, we're going to be thinking about this idea of culture and our calling within it as Christians. It seems a fitting thing to do, the birthday of Martin Luther King. Um, but don't misunderstand me. This will not be a sermon where I go through the major cultural flashpoints of our moment and tell you all the things that I think or that you should think about them. Uh, there's a time for doing things like that, and next week we'll have a sermon that's closer to something like that. Uh, but this week we're going to look at the concept of culture more broadly and more specifically on how you are called to engage in it as a Christian. We're going to do that by looking at several passages in the Bible and drawing some implications. It's, it's a huge topic. I can't come close to summarizing all of it, uh, but I am indebted by what thinking I have done to the work of a man named Andy Crouch, who wrote a book called Culture Making. I invite you to pick it up after uh, our service is over if you're interested in the topic. But this morning, my aim is uh, rather limited. I hope to convince you of this, that you being made in the image of God have a calling to create culture. You being made in the image of God have a calling to create culture culture. We'll see that in three sections in this topical sermon. First, we'll answer the question, where culture came from? Where culture came from? Second, we'll look at where culture is going. Where culture is going. And then third and finally, we'll see where culture fits in our calling. Where culture fits in our calling as Christians. Let's begin in that first section. Where culture came from? We should start with a definition. Culture is one of those words that we use very regularly. Uh, there are shorthand definitions and implied themes when we use that word, but oftentimes we're not conscious of them. I, I think the vast majority of the time when we talk about culture, people are talking about 
shared attitudes or perspectives that a group of people have. That's the kind of colloquial way of talking about culture. But if you dig into uh, sociology, you come up with much more technical definitions. I will spare you the worst of them and give you one that is somewhat palatable. This comes from Robert Redfield, not to be confused with the actor Robert Redford. He says, culture is shared understanding made manifest in act and artifact. Shared understanding made manifest in act and artifact. I think that's a lot better and more helpful, but it's still a little abstract, difficult to wrap your head around. So uh, we'll be operating with the definition that comes from Andy Crouch. I think it's wonderfully elegant. It's, it's this. Culture is what we make of the world. Culture is what we make of the world. Uh, what we use, our resources and our relationships and our times, uh, our time we have, all of it, the products that we produce, the attitudes that come about as a result, all of it is, you could call culture. And if you trace back what the Bible has to say about culture, you'll see that it is everywhere. I grew up in a, a town, um, it's called Weston, Weston, Florida. It's the last town west of Fort Lauderdale. Beyond it is pure Everglades. And there was a season where uh, Weston did not exist. There was just swampy marshland, just like the rest of the Everglades, as far as the eye could see, in the spot where there is now a very prosperous city. But an act of cultivating and creation happened. Someone developed that land. They drained away the water. They put in roads and traffic lights and buildings. And now, Weston is a place with a very distinct culture. For some reason, it has a culture of really liking Teslas as I drove around it this last uh, trip there. Uh, we are in the midst of a world that is constantly having culture created in big and small ways. And if we trace it back, we see it finds its origin all the way back in the Garden of Eden. These are our verses this morning. Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 20. Appear on the slide behind me. Genesis 2, 15 through 20. The, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. Uh, last week we saw how there was a rhythm to the days of creation. Um, how God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And that rhythm, though, found a, an exception on day six when God made man and woman in his own image. And that image was reflected in their work. Well, Genesis 2 uh, zooms in on that sixth day of creation, the creation of man and woman. 
and shows us some more details of what it means for man to be made in the image of God and to work. Uh, there's two that are very important for us this morning. Uh, the reality that man was given a task to cultivate and to create. To cultivate and to create. Uh, you can see that man was given the task of cultivating. He was placed in the Garden of Eden. And we're told he was given the task of working it and keeping it. Um, we don't know exactly what work was like before the fall. Uh, someone this week asked me, did Adam have to do any bending over in order to work and keep the garden? Or did he just pull down fruit off trees from a standing position? Uh, frankly, I don't know. Um, those two words, work and keep, they definitely are farming, gardening type words, which to me implies that there was getting down in the dirt sort of work. But somehow or the other, that labor was not laborious. That work was very different than the work we know, which is wearying and filled with failures and frustrations. Uh, maybe the dirt worked alongside Adam. Maybe the trees were his allies in his work somehow. I, I don't know exactly. Uh, but we do know that there was a, a work that's something analogous to what we know as cultivating, uh, creating conditions for things to thrive. That was the original job given in the original place that the original image bearer of God had. But then there's a second job he's given. It's a little more odd, and that is to exercise creativity. God noticed that there was something not good. Up until then, everything's been good. Uh, but Adam does not have a companion the way that all the rest of the animals do. And God decides to do something about it. Uh, first, though, he is going to make Adam aware of what he's doing. So he brings each of the animals to Adam and gives him a job, a job that requires, requires creativity. Adam is to name animals that up until then had no name. Now, why did God do that? At one level, he's pointing out to Adam these creatures that all have pairs, so he'll notice his lack of a pair. But at another level, think about it. God is giving Adam the dignity of exercising this gift he's given him, the ability to create. Now, God could have easily named all the animals himself, it's not like God didn't know what they were. But God wanted from the beginning for people made in his image to make something of this world by not just cultivating, but also by creativity, by making things exist that in some sense weren't there before. Now, when you start to think about culture making in terms of cultivating and creating, uh, you come to realize it's all around us and has been all the way since the beginning of humanity. Again and again, people have exercised these twin callings, creating, cultivating, making things that weren't there before. Uh, you can see it on big scales in cities. You can see it in small scales, the, the way you organize your family. We are called to create culture. Now, at the beginning here, it's just Adam and God, but soon enough, Eve enters the picture. And soon after that, after the fall, there's plenty of children and offspring. Their actions of creating and cultivating begin to make uh, culture. Uh, 
that human history is built upon. Now, of course, it, not all that's good. Uh, Genesis 3 introduces the fall. And we see that creating culture actually ends up perpetuating and even intensifying the sinful patterns that infect our hearts. Um, Adam's offspring end up killing each other and building cities known for wickedness. It all gets so bad that God actually wipes the whole thing clean in the flood, except for Noah and his family. And after that, you have a series of cities, uh, people building something in the world, and yet they are places that are known for concentrating sin and sinners. Sodom and its wanton immorality. Egypt and its deification of Pharaoh and its slavery. Even Jerusalem, uh, the city that God's people inhabited, became known for worshiping false gods and oppressing the poor. All this shows us that culture can be two things at the same time. It can be a good thing given by God for our good and his glory, and it can be an occasion for even greater sin. But let's not skip past the good parts of culture. As, my, as I've thought about culture this week, I think most often we dwell on the bad. So let's just take a moment to dwell on the inherent goodness of it. Uh, think about fireworks. Uh, we have a culture of fireworks a couple times of a year, 4th of July and New Year's. Uh, people go outside their houses or to parks, and they stare up at the sky as people launch explosives high into the air, which explode in glorious incandescence to the oohs and ahs of everyone, right? Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into creating fireworks. There's a lot of creativity that goes into making fireworks. Someone figured out the right mixture of chemicals that would burn to create certain colors and the way to pack them to create certain shapes. And when you stand there gawking at the sky over New Year's, seeing things explode, you're seeing a little glimmer of the glory of the God who made us. A God who is creative and made us to be creative as well. Uh, every time you eat, uh, you are seeing a little glimpse of a part of creating culture that's very, very good. Cultivation. Uh, the fact that we have food that grows season after season is because people tended fields and planted seeds and put down fertilizer. Uh, the curse did not wipe away our ability to cultivate and for things to grow. We should recognize there is much, much good that we can see in the culture that we enjoy if we have the eyes to see it. I love the song we sang just a little while ago, This Is My Father's World. Speaking of God's common grace and the creation, I think you can also apply it to the good glimmers of the glory of God you see in culture. There's this one line, He shines in all that's fair. I think that's true. And everything good that's made, even those things that are made with human hands. So before we bail out on culture because of all the negative things, yes, it concentrates and perpetuates sin. Yes, we'll see culture has some serious shortcomings and we need to have right expectations about it. And yet from the beginning, culture was a good gift from God. He made us in his image to create and cultivate and to make something of this world. And there's a second movement that shows us 
where culture is heading, which should give us all the hope in the world as we engage in creating culture ourselves. Second, where culture is heading. Um, sometimes Christians think of culture as something that's merely transitory. Uh, we have to live in this world, in the world, but not of it. But one day we'll be free from it. We'll go to heaven. And then all human culture will be left behind. But I think if you're paying close attention to your Bible, you realize that is flattening out the storyline of the Bible. To see it, we need to fast forward to the very end of the Bible. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Up until now, we've had a series of very sinful cities. And finally, we have a different one. A glorious sin-free city, New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, this city is different than all the other cities that have come before it. Uh, it is not a place that perpetuates and accentuates the sin of the people within it. It is a city with no sin whatsoever. No wickedness can ever enter its gates. It's also a city not built by human hands. No, God himself is the architect of this city. But we should not take that to think that this city, survival, means the end of human culture. Uh, if you pay careful attention to the rest of the vision, the way the city is described, uh, you'll see that there are marks of human work upon it. Uh, for instance, the 12 tribes of Israel have their names on the gates. Uh, the 12 apostles have their names on the foundation stones. There's also fine materials, as they're described, these gemstones. Uh, if you pay careful attention to them, they're not the sort of thing you just dig out of the ground. Uh, they're the sort of things that need to be polished and cut and made useful for a building purpose. Uh, there seems to be the best of human culture resurrected and purified and built by God into this glorious city. Uh, but even more than that, there's hints that there is ongoing work for those redeemed that are a part of this new creation to keep living out their calling to create culture. Well, look with me down in verses 24 through 27. We're just told that there's no uh, sun in the city and there's no temple because the, the Lord their God is their light. In verse 24, uh, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day and there'll be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does which is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, to read Revelation well, you have to know your Old Testament well. Uh, that twice-repeated line of the kings of the earth bringing their glory into it is echoing Isaiah chapter 60. 
Uh, in that prophecy, uh, the Jerusalem is being rebuilt. The, the kings of the earth come and they bring with them their riches. And by that it means their finest materials, the best lumber they can cut, the most glittering gold they can find. All of it is brought to Jerusalem for a single purpose, to beautify it, to make something of it and make it more glorious. Uh, I think with Isaiah 60 in mind, that we are to understand that we won't spend all eternity in the new heavens and new earth, twiddling our thumbs or in just some never-ending church service, uh, but that we will, ha uh, uh, we will enjoy living out that original calling Adam had, but in an even more glorious fashion. Uh, we will cultivate and create the glory of God for all eternity, and it will be good. So creating culture right now is a worthwhile enterprise. Uh, it's what we were originally made to do, and one day it's what we will spend eternity doing to the glory of God. Uh, what, does that have to, what does that do to how we think about culture and us creating it today? Well, let me give you two quick reactions to where, where we are so far. First, don't expect utopia. Don't expect utopia, no matter how good of a culture you might dream up. No matter how much culture making we do, how hard we pray, how much we plan, or even how effective we are in it, none of us will ever achieve creating the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, that's something only Jesus can bring about. And that means all the culture making we might do, even to the glory of God, is limited at best. It won't last forever. It certainly won't live up to all of our expectations. And sooner or later, that sinful impulse within each of us will find expression in even the best culture that we build. So be very skeptical when someone comes along, whether they be a politician or a prince or a good friend, some philosopher, and they promise you a remade world that will be free from all defects, a perfect culture if we'll just give them the power to do it. Uh, now, we'll never create utopia on earth. Uh, the ending of the Bible makes sure that we have our expectations in the right place with this. But secondly, we should also realize that culture is worth creating until that day arrives. That in the in-between time, it's worth all the effort to do what we can to the glory of God and good of our neighbors, to make something of this world, even if it's limited. Uh, we, our family used to live in Wheaton, Illinois, and there was a particular park that we were very thankful for. It was a place called Cantini. Cantini um, did not exist at one point. It was just um, a plot of land that at first had nothing on it. Eventually it became the homestead for a very wealthy family. Uh, the estate of the people that owned that plot of land decided to donate it and to create a park out of that land. And as a result, where there used to be just wilderness, now there were wonderful gardens that bloomed each spring. Uh, places you could go and have a picnic or take a quiet walk by yourself. There was also a place to Remember history 
and to even honor those who fought in the armed forces. There was a museum and all sorts of historical artifacts from wars and people that went off to war from that community. Our family learned a lot about the community we were a part of for a while by walking amongst all those artifacts of culture. Now that park, it's not gonna last forever. And it certainly didn't solve all the issues of Wheaton or all the issues in my life. But the world's a little bit better because Cantini's there than it would be otherwise. And if you have redeemed eyes, I think you can see a little glimmer of the glory of God in it. Because he made us to make something of this world. To create a culture as a part of our calling. So we as Christians should realize the inherent goodness of culture that the limitations of it. But that leaves us with the thorniest of questions. What in the world is our calling as Christians specifically when it comes to culture? Uh, Christians have been asking this question since uh, the earliest apostles. How in the world do we live faithfully in the world but not of it? Uh, How do we impact the culture around us? How do we have a prophetic voice to the culture around us? How do we have a faithful witness to the culture around us? All this is trying to describe the same idea that we Christians have a calling, disciples of Jesus, to evangelize the nations, to gather and worship, to be faithful to our Lord Jesus. And somehow or the other, part of that is our role creating culture with our fellow citizens wherever the God has placed us. Well, there's lots of different ways of thinking about it. I found Andy Crouch's uh, four positions that Christians often take toward culture to be very helpful, or four postures, rather. Uh, Four postures that I think summarize largely the way Christians have thought of it. Uh, The first is to take a condemning posture. That is to see something that is evil and repugnant, to say we, we can take no part in it whatsoever, to denounce it and work against it, and thereby to condemn it. Now that doesn't mean to be nasty and rude, but it does mean not participating in it. Uh, Certainly, as we look back at the history of our nation, we wish Christians would have earlier realized that they should condemn racism and slavery uh, rather than accommodate it for as long as they did. Uh, Condemning at times is the faithful response to something that is outright evil or sinful. Now, if you stay in a condemning posture, all you do will pull back and disengage from the world. Uh, You will be like the monks that went off to live in the desert, or at least on a smaller scale, disengaged from the people and the community that live around you. The second posture is critiquing. Uh, In critiquing, we look at the culture around us and try to get underneath it to the worldview, to the philosophy that makes sense of it, and try to offer a Christian rebuttal to it in the realm of ideas. Uh, Critiquing culture is very, very helpful, especially as culture gets further and further away from what the Bible teaches. It exposes the folly of living as if there is no God or with false conceptions of God. It can strengthen the faith of believers and it can provide opportunities for evangelism when it's done well. But criticism on its own is not enough as Christians. If all we do is criticize, we'll never get around to doing anything 
We'll just write lots and lots of books and record lots and lots of podcasts. So critiquing culture on its own isn't enough. A third is copying culture. Uh, that is, you see something, maybe something that has a lot of good to it, but some things that a Christian doesn't want to participate in or can't participate in. So they take it and they strip out the bad parts and they make a Christian version of it. Um, you can turn on your radio in your car and hear lots of examples of Christians that have copied forms of music that are popular in our time or maybe in the generations that came before us. Um, that is a form of copying the culture around us. Now, copying can be a really awesome, really powerful tool for Christians to use. Uh, I don't think it's wrong for me to use the best practices for public speaking to try and make my sermons as helpful and engaging as possible. Uh, where we can take things that are wise and good and use them to the glory of God, copying culture can be very, very useful. But on the other hand, if we copy culture too often or in uncareful uh, ways, we can create things that are second rate and give the impression that God is second rate. Or we can end up copying things that have no business being copied, that are inherently sinful in and of themselves. There's so a fourth posture, and that is consuming culture. Uh, that is, you take the things that are happening in the community around you, the group of people you're a part of, and you participate in them without trying to analyze or rebut. You just take part in it and enjoy it for the goodness sake of it. Now, at its best, this is a wonderful thing. Uh, we should be glad to walk in the same parks as our non-Christian neighbors, and even to make more of them ourselves, because there's a goodness to the culture of enjoying the outdoors. And yet, if you consume the wrong parts of culture, uncritically, you end up conforming to the world around you. You watch the same movies, you listen to the same music, you say the same words, you do the same things. Now, I think the strength of Crouch's four postures is that none of them on their own is sufficient to explain the way that Christians ought to react to the culture around them. Uh, the, yesterday, Theo and I were playing with a, one of his Christmas gifts, kind of like an erector set type thing. And uh, to, in order to help him, I need to get down on the floor and get down low to be able to screw everything in and snap it together. And I kind of lost myself in the whole process, making this airplane with him. And uh, we had a great time. He certainly was enjoying himself. I was. And after maybe an hour or so of that, I decided it's time to, to get up. And as I stood up, I realized that I had been in one posture for far too long. And that while Theo enjoyed what had just occurred, my body did not. And it really protested me standing straight and upright. Uh, we know this from our own bodies. You can't stand in one posture for too long without doing yourself harm. You need to be balanced. And I think Christians are to exercise wisdom Realizing that at different points and different aspects of the different cultures they interact with, each of these four postures are necessary. At times, we have to condemn things in our culture. At times, we need to critique it. At times, we should copy it. And at times, we should consume it. It takes wisdom to know what is appropriate at what time. But I, I think we can broadly say that most of us tend toward one or two at the expense of the others. So ask yourself, 
which of these postures do I most naturally slide into? Am I more likely to condemn than I am to consume? To critique than I am to copy? Is, might there be something off balance about the way that I'm interacting with the cultures that God has me in contact with? I think also that as important as that is to know how to respond to cultures around us, we can't lose sight of that basic call in creation for us to create ourselves. There's something good about Christians innovating and finding ways to iterate, uh, finding ways to look at the culture around them and say, how can I make something that takes it a better, uh, in a better direction or make something new that doesn't exist that could lead people away from the way of sin and closer to a righteous life? Uh, back in the history of our country, there was a time during the Great Awakening when Christians did a lot of creating. Uh, the Spirit of God uh, gave a special outpouring during that time. Many, many people were converted. And many of those people invested their time and energy and resources into building things for the good of their neighbors and the glory of God. Uh, most of the colleges that we call Ivy League came from that period and Christians in that time wanting to make something of this world. Uh, maybe you ask yourself, is there some way that I can make something of the little corner of this world that God has put me in? Uh, don't overwhelm yourself by trying to change the whole world all at once. Ask yourself about the particular people and the place you're in and what needs you might fill by something you make. Uh, families, uh, you have, while you have kids in the home, you have an opportunity to make something of this world by creating a culture. Think carefully about how you spend your evenings and your meals, how intentional you are about reading books and praying together, how you model rest and work and play. All of it can be used as a way to create for their good and the glory of God. Uh, think about it in your neighborhood. Uh, maybe you're in a neighborhood that has a homeowner's association. Could you join that homeowner's association? Uh, maybe get on the board? Could you use that arena there for the good of your neighbors, the glory of God, to make your neighborhood more beautiful, uh, to make it a place where people thrive more easily? Could you use some administrative know-how or creativity to start a new neighborhood initiative that might do a lot of good. Not make everything right, but still worth doing. Or maybe at your job. Uh, maybe you can take something that your employer has you doing and see some way to innovate upon it to make something entirely new. A new product that people will benefit from. A, a new service that people will be thankful for. If it's done... For the glory of God and the good of your neighbor, it's something worth doing. So brothers and sisters, don't look down on the, your calling to create culture in this world. You won't create utopia and you certainly won't solve all the problems in this world. Uh, you won't even save your lost neighbors by creating culture alone. And yet you're made in the image of a God that made you. Uh, made you to cultivate and create 
and yes, to participate in making culture. So do what you can and do it with his grace, before his face, and for his glory. I'll end with this, an example from our own family. Uh, we had been trying to find ways to be more involved in the community around us. We had tried different things, trying to build relationships with our neighbors in the neighborhood. Um, none of our ideas had really taken off. And then one day, Precious came across a hiking group. It's called Wild and Free. Um, they were currently without formal leadership. The um, uh, person who was doing it didn't want to keep doing it, and the group was not really having much happening. And Precious saw an opportunity. Uh, maybe she could make something out of this group to benefit homeschool moms and their kids with a chance to get out in nature, to hike, to build community, to learn together, and overall bring about some good for the glory of God. So it's been a little over a year since she started it, and um, it has not been utopia. There have been bumps along the way. And yet, in large part, I'd say the Lord has blessed it. Uh, the group has grown. There's probably about three dozen families now that regularly take part in it. Uh, each week, they go out, and they partake in something that wasn't there before God put this in front of Precious, um, an opportunity to make something of the world by hiking and spending time together out in nature. Our brothers and sisters, let's give thanks to God for the goodness of the way he made us. And yes, that includes a calling of engaging in culture, whether big or small, with his grace before his face. Let's work for our good and his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the goodness of the way you've made us. And we thank you how that is a calling not to be off on our own, uh, but to, get to, to together make something of this world, to build culture. Uh, Father, we are thankful that you've given us a hopeful vision that one day we will get to live out that calling free of frustration and failure in a perfect world before the face of our Lord Jesus in a way that's so much better than what we experience right now. Until that day, we ask you to help us to be faithful wherever you have placed us, whatever resources and relationships you've given us. Uh, would we see our calling to make something of this world as something you've given us for our good, for your glory? Uh, Father, we are mindful of the fact that our Savior Jesus has, in fact, made something in this world that did not previously exist, a culture in this place we call the church. As we come to the Lord's table now, we're reminded how our Savior did that by sacrificing his own life, his body broken, his blood shed, so that a people might be forgiven and a new body might be created, one that didn't exist before. Father, we're thankful for the life we get to live out together and the culture of this church in which you've placed us. Uh, we think about our shared bond of the Spirit, uh, the way that you allow us to strive for peace, forgiving one another, and considering, considering each other more important than ourselves. Uh, we think even of the way that you allow us to 
reconcile when sin does enter in to our fellowship. To overlook wrongs that are committed, to pay the penalty of, uh, uh, to take the penalty that our uh, sins deserve and to bring them to the cross so that there might be nothing between us, that we might be truly one. Uh, Father, now as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table, I pray that you would help each of us by your spirit, would we be able to soberly assess the true state of our hearts? Would you reveal to us areas where we have fallen into sin, maybe even that we do not recognize up until now, uh, the things that we should have done, that we've left undone, the things that we did that we had no business doing, uh, the direct commands that you gave us that we ignored. Uh, Father, would you bring them to our mind? And then would you give us the grace to confess them before you, being assured that you are eager to forgive us and restore us to the joy of our salvation. Uh, thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus that covers each and every one of our sins. As we now take these elements together, I pray you would be building the unity of our church that we might bring you glory as we are one before this watching world. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.